2: Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au.
1: Solidarity forever!
3: Good morning everybody. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast on your 3CR, your community radio station. And uh, if you've been listening to uh, 3CR over the breakfast week, you will have noticed that uh, we have been focusing on... AI, artificial intelligence. We've been investigating it and so this is what we're going to do on this Saturday on Solidarity Breakfast as well. But before we do, I've got a couple of things to tell you about. There's going to be an event at the uh, outside in the forecourt of the uh, NGV the National Gallery of Victoria. It starts at 11am and then it's an Extinction Rebellion event. It's uh from the Mothers' Rebellion for Climate Justice. They've got a Facebook, but they're also turning up live outside the Arts Centre at 11am to call for climate justice. Uh, another piece of information, the... Uh, People at working for the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence, you may have been aware the workers uh, represented by the ASU, the Australian Services Union, have been taking strike action for wages in line with inflation and certain conditions. This is the first time in the 93 year history of the organisation that strike action has been taken. They will be taking another two days strike action next Thursday and Friday with a rally at 12.30 outside the Fitzroy branch in Brunswick Street. And uh, they would love it if supporters turned up. Uh, today, as I said, there's a focus on uh, uh, AI. And uh, first up, we're going to talk to uh, Professor Richard Dazley, who is currently a professor of Artificial Intelligence and Machine Learning and Deputy Head of School for the School of Information Technology at Deakin University. He is the lead investigator in the school's program of research for the Machine Intelligence Lab in the Centre for Data to Intelligence. And the last part of that biography, data to intelligence, is a key to unlocking what artificial intelligence is. In the conversation I had with Professor Dazley, I was keen to get an understanding of human-aligned anomalous systems and why he signed a letter from Australians for AI Safety that calls for a particular approach to AI regulation at a government level and AI safety research in Australian universities. So this is what Professor Richard Dazley had to say. Thank you very much for talking to me today. You're one of the people who signed a letter from the Australians for AI safety following the Minister Ed Huzik's rather optimistic approach to AI, and the uh, letter that was sent out by the Chief Scientist. Can you give my listeners an understanding of what your concerns are?
0: The concerns are that there's a lot of things I guess we don't know about emerging AI trends. Our Concerns sit around things like AI alignment, so trying to ensure that these systems align to what it is best aligned to humanity and what we want in our lives and society and what people want as they live their lives, because these systems have the ability to potentially have the ability to take some of our own control away or feel like that they can take that control away to automate those processes in in whatever way. So trying to ensure that these systems align, these systems will be making lots of decisions about lots of different things that we might do in our lives and be able to interrogate those systems so that we can actually understand why it's doing or suggesting what it's suggesting rather than just have it come up with that suggestion.
3: I suppose we should uh, really get into some explanations, really, because there's different types of AI, aren't there? Like there's, you know, there's this the narrow AI that deals with specific actions, while then there's general AI, and that's not the same thing at all.
0: No, no, they're they're quite different concepts. And look, the... The vast majority of any AI that anybody's going to encounter at the moment is narrow AI. Uh, That is, it's created to fulfil a particular and very specific task. Uh, And it can do that task really well in some cases. And in some cases, it will do that task better than people. But these are not general AI systems. And a general AI system is capable of operating across multiple different problems, types of problems, different types of perceiving the environment, so visual or audio or text or or so forth. And so they might perceive the world in different ways as well. Uh, And it should be able to process that and solve problems that are more general, not relating to a specific task. Also identify what that task is going to be and then apply the correct way of doing that
3: yeah so so that's what your actual actual expertise is in isn't it multiple uh vectors effectively
0: um so my, my area is um in what's called multi objective which is not it it is still narrow AI in the sense that it's dealing with applying solving one particular task generally, but it considers that that task has Multiple issues that we might want to consider. So, when you hop in the car, you might say, I want to get to my destination as fast as possible, but that doesn't mean I want to take risks with my life or pedestrians' lives. So, there's these ulterior things that we don't actually specify, but if it was to break them, we wouldn't be happy. So, they're almost unwritten rules in the background that we might also have. And so this is where the alignment comes in. We want to make sure that even though the person may not have actually said this is a requirement, it should realise that there are the requirements that it needs to at least consider and, and mitigate in those things.
3: And that's an intriguing concept, isn't it? Human alignment problem.
0: Yes, yes. Yeah. So, So the human alignment problem is humans don't specify well uh what it is we want we we might specify the very specific thing we want uh and we think we're clear about that but we don't necessarily specify all the things we don't want and that can confuse an AI so
3: bit like Aladdin isn't it I mean all those fairy tales where they say you've got 10 wishes
0: yes and look there's even a, a, a clip from this from I think it's Fantasia where mickey mouse casts a spell or something and then it gets out of hand because it's not actually what it wanted
3: magician's apprentice with the yes uh, that's the one the sweeping grooves
0: yes that's the one and that's sort of the the classic thing we say we want this but that's not actually what we want we've got these hidden hidden things we want another example that a more real world example that i've sometimes used is capitalism capitalism is very much focused on it's got this objective, which is to try and make money. Uh, What we don't consider is that simply making money doesn't necessarily align to everything that people might want. And we've seen through history that there's been lots of cases where um, capitalism or pure capitalism causes problems and so people have to start creating rules to try and stop that so whether or not that's slavery or corporate greed or monopolies or or whatever the different um, situation is we've had governments come up with legislation that tries to prevent capitalists from doing particular things and the reason is because what those companies were doing was not aligned to what society wants Yeah, Yeah, we've we've ended up with this massive library of um, law and people become specialists in law, specifically in corporation law. And I expect we need something similar in an AI sense that we need to have a body of law that constrains what AI potentially can do or ensures that that AI is operating in a way that agrees with what society values and yeah. what we want
3: I mean I, I found it interesting to when I was looking up about uh, being precise about what AI, AI is that it's actually uh, as is described in that rather interesting group that you're part of, which is the future of life Institute mm-hmm. um, AI uh, is about intelligence but it's not about feelings. Um, No, definitely not about feelings. Feelings, yeah. And uh, just to read from the Future of Life Institute, we believe that the way uh, powerful technology is developed and used will be the most important factor in determining the prospects for the future of life. I mean, that's a huge statement, isn't it?
0: It is. It is. And it's entirely correct uh, in that decisions about how we're going to live are going to be directly affected and already is by AI. A lot of the AI that people encounter now, one, they often don't know they're encountering it, but it is already affecting their lives. If you look at simple algorithms used in TikTok recommendation methods or what appears in your Twitter feed and how these things will actually affect you personally, these things are driven by rather simple AI algorithms, but they've shown that they change people's behavior although there are also instances where people specifically deliberately do things to train the AI into the things that they want to see as well so it does go both ways but these things have the effect of potentially um changing human behavior and we want to make sure that either Everybody agrees that it should be changing our behavior in a particular way. That's unlikely you get any agreement on that. And I think this is where these algorithms, that they're not necessarily designed to change our behavior. So TikTok recommendation algorithms are not designed to change people's behavior necessarily. They're designed to simply maximize clicks, which is a change of behavior, but they just want to...
3: They're amplifying the um, commercial imperative. That's what they're doing. That's right. That's right.
0: And that's what all of these methods have been about for for years is to try and increase that that commercial imperative it's just that that's been done with with data mining and ai now um
3: that's right some extent it's
0: been done for a while
3: yeah yeah but but it's important because like you say i mean those really irritating things where they decide what ad you're going to get and all those kind of things down to the point where they know exactly what kind of like i bought a pair of shoes and hmm. now I'm getting um, uh, puma ads. You know what I yes. mean? That sort of thing. Uh, and um, I mean, I didn't ask for it.
0: <laughs> no, no.
3: Um, but anyway, by the by. Hopefully, um, one
0: day they'll get they'll they'll get smarter and um, go. Well, you've already bought the pair of shoes, but now you need the the matching pair of socks. So. <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah. Well, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Like you say, they don't actually—they're not intended necessarily to change people's uh, decision-making processes. But in some cases, they are. Like there's an erosion of democratic processes potentially, aren't there? With this kind of uh, narrowing the paths through which people are streamed in a a intellectual way.
0: It there, there can be. So there's certainly been work within the AI community around nudging and and nudging people to change their opinion about things um that you can actually push people in particular directions this has obviously been done i I guess mostly from a marketing point of view if we can drive people towards what we want to sell them then that saves us creating the product they want we can just make them want the product we've got um
3: And also, if you repeat something over and over and over, like uh, when um, the last election during uh, when Morrison was returned to power, for Mm. example, if you went on to YouTube, there were these endless anti-Chinese ads that were centered around getting votes for one of the more right-wing parties, and it was a deluge. It was quite interesting. I didn't realise until I actually wanted something from YouTube to realise that this will be affecting some people over and above others. Mm. Mm. But you know that, and that's based on uh, an algorithm. Uh, also, the um, the business about um, uh, anti-vax information that was amplified, and when when it was actually. Uh, tracked back it was tracked back to about 28 people in the entire world which was quite fascinating which is an example of this
0: if people know how to influence others and there's certainly lots of people that that are very good at this uh you can certainly push large groups of people into whichever direction you want to push them and ai is certainly a tool that's capable of amplifying that
3: yeah but it's not because it's immoral
0: because it has no morals. No, it's got no morals and doesn't care. <laughs> and it doesn't um, care. And this is why, I guess, I mean, I'd like to see more discussion in the legal sense. Uh, I think governments around the world are a long, long way behind. There's certainly lots of stuff that is happening in the background. Uh, and look, this this letter submitted to the federal government is the federal government looking at this problem. But we're still years behind of probably where we should be. The field is moving very quickly in the way that it affects things. And generative AI methods now, the, the text generation and so forth, is going to have an effect on a number of different areas, I guess. And yet we still have no legislation or rules around how these things are rolled out.
3: Well, that's interesting because, you know, the generative AI uh, has led to this whole discussion about how. Uh, originally it was believed that AI was going to affect blue-collar workers, but of course generative AI is a direct attack on the work of uh, white-collar workers, isn't it?
0: Yes, yeah. yeah. And I mean, I've always been a little fascinated with a lot of conversations around things like creative areas and so forth as well as uh, creative areas will be safe from AI. And I mean, there's been work as early as the 80s which showed that these systems could create pieces of art that people couldn't even tell were AI generated. So there's certainly no reason why it can't generate creative and original pieces of art.
3: You know, but that that begs the question, of course, what's the point? I mean, it always well, begs it, the question, what's the point?
0: for me at home to have a painting done and big painting done and put on my wall it was going to cost me $8,000 to have someone do it but I might be able to have an AI generate it for and have it printed up for a much cheaper price and then I get a piece of art on my wall no yeah. I don't need to tell anyone it's AI generated it in my house yeah and sure yeah. for the for the people in the in the in the museum it's uh they don't want it but in my house I don't necessarily may not care who the artist was I just want something on my wall
3: well that's funny you should say that because I've got a printmaker a sister who says that uh, when she was talking to someone about this when they build a building and they need to fill it up they only want uh, pictures of a particular dimension they're not too they don't yeah. really care about what's in the picture as long as it's just the right dimension
0: yeah yeah well right. we wanted something for our wall and we went, Well, this is the colour scheme of the room, so we want something with this list of colours. We have a very specific list of colours. Didn't care what the painting was a painting of. It just had to have these colours. So Yes. Yeah,
3: that's right. Now let's get to um the business of uh what you think uh important uh, in this letter i mean originally it was about recognize the risk because edge was actually implying that people were just scaremongering when it came comes to requiring a framework the impression look was there certainly
0: was... is scaremongering um and but that doesn't mean there isn't requirement of a framework um so there's been a few letters sent out and there was one i think OpenAI CEO and some others that did appear to be more scaremongering than anything else. Um, And I don't think scaremongering is constructive um, in the sense that from my viewpoint, we're not going to have an iRobot apocalypse type thing occur. But where there is a risk, there is still a risk that an AI system that is built to fulfill a particular function but has access to more areas of the world than necessarily required for that, can potentially, in achieving that, have a much wider impact than what we expect. Some people certainly express some concern well, if this is in our um, uh, weapon systems, it could actually create conflicts and so forth. And I agree, that's where you've still got potential risks. There's actually an interesting little short movie film released by future of life institute which tries to show how human in the loop ai is actually still a problem so one of the big things in research at the moment for the last few years has been this human what's called human in the loop which is the ai works out what the right thing to do is but it doesn't press the final button to make it happen and it instead presents that to a user and says hey this is what I think you should do in this situation and provides the button for the person to agree or disagree with doing that. So the human's there and the human makes the final decision, but it's highly dependent on whether or not the human has the information required to be able to make that decision. The AI might be pulling together a huge amount of sources of information in making that recommendation. We don't have methods to adequately explain why it's recommending the recommendation and know that it's providing that explanation in a truthful and honest representation of that information and that we know that that information isn't biased in any way, then we can make a decision. But actually, the the systems that actually allow us to provide all of those details aren't really there. A neural network that analyzes a whole bunch of data is impossible, even for an expert to understand why it's made the decision, we actually need to develop the techniques to to do this. And that's sort of been one of the thrusts over the last few years is to, to try and develop these methods that allow the system to explain or be more transparent with why it's making the decisions. But I think there's a long way to go. It's still quite a difficult problem. The person still needs to be an expert with, within those areas that those explanations are coming from. Yet, uh, as portrayed in this particular movie, uh, short film, if a human's got to make a quick decision based on that AI recommendation, how do we know that they're actually making the right decision? People will tend to just agree with a system that gives them the right decision. And there's been experiments done on this. I was just uh,
3: going to say, because uh, people have a, um, we've been educated, I think, as a general rule to defer to the computer or a scientific, in a word, commas, a gleaned uh, outcome, uh, believing yeah. that it's superior. I, I think probably once people started to read and write, there was a belief that reading and writing was superior to oral history, for example. You yes. Know? Yeah. A, a technology um, has that kind of glamour.
0: It does. And um, in some instances, it's, it's quite possibly correct. It's in, in lots of cases, it is summing together the best solution for the question that's been asked. The question is, is, was that the right question to ask it? Is it providing a recommendation on the right thing that we actually want to know? And is it considering all the other objectives that we forgot to tell it were important and the possible consequences of that decision? So an AI system is not necessarily going to be able to take into uh, consideration the consequences, what it could if it's been programmed for that. And this is why The systems need to be developed to ensure that, for instance, it understands the consequence of a particular recommendation if that recommendation is followed. It should
3: be a tool. It shouldn't be the end. That's what you're saying. It should be a tool.
0: That's right. We've seen this with AI systems in the stock market. Mm. An AI system in the stock market might go, well, the best thing for me to do at this point is to buy or to sell because of these parameters. But it's not necessarily factoring in well, if everybody uh, uses the same method and we all generate the same outcome, then this is going to be the the outcome is going to be a stock market crash, even though that wasn't ever something that was going to happen, but it's something that the AI can actually generate to occur, and so we actually get micro crashes and so forth that can occur, and so people have to start writing in systems that find these potential things occurring beforehand and kind of manually stop it from happening. What I guess I and my interpretation of future of life and others are saying is rather than wait until we've got these problems occurring, we need to actually try and identify how we're going to solve those problems, uh, identify the problems and how we're going to go about solving those problems now before we start getting... More significant problems,
3: yeah I understand okay. yeah 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 uh, understand its limitations um I was really interested in the uh, thing about the um, uh, it, the black box what's happening in um, uh, Singapore uh how it's got a government uh, investigation into uh, creating a uh, interrogation um, of logarithms um so that there was a creation of uh, 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 an environment of transparency. You see that as important, don't you?
0: Yes, yeah. So I think it's really important. that, and, and there's a number of groups around the world that are looking at transparency and how to do that. And there's several levels to that, how, how we actually try and do that. We've probably gone through a period of time where we've been just trying to interpret the data, but there's certainly a lot more work in in how that data affects the decision, what are the factors that we're considering in that data, whether or not that data has bias built within it, and really being able to interrogate these concepts so that we can actually have more confidence in these systems.
3: You go to the point where you think that there should be an AI commission or a, a whole infrastructure right. similar to the uh, idea of the um, aeronautics uh, area. And it, and you see that as being just a very practical approach, right?
0: Yes. Yeah. Well, my view is at the Australian government level is probably not enough. I think it needs to be at an international level. But all we'd probably get is an Australian level. But we certainly need to be able to uh, interrogate the systems and understand whether or not those systems are doing both what they say they're doing but that they're also not having any significant effect on things that we don't want them having an effect on. Um, Most software development systems will, you can include testing methods to make sure they're actually doing what we say they're doing, but we need to actually be showing that they're not doing something we didn't intend them to be doing as well.
3: Well, yeah, of course. And, of course, there's been, you know, uh the thing about the uh cars that can run by themselves there's been accidents and then then there was mm. Boeing's airplane that uh crashed right
0: mm. yeah yeah so I mean I'd still say that they they're the first order problems in that they're not doing what they were asked to do um but for instance in a system that is going to have side effects on the way other people or systems behave so Autonomous cars that are all going to to behave in a particular way might affect other drivers, for instance, or or, um, other road users, even though that's not something that's particularly important to the car itself, to the people that design that car. It's not one of the things they're going to test for. But as a society, we wouldn't want all of these systems, for instance, let's say, for instance, it's entirely hypothetical but the AI finds that it's safer to make sure it drives around other AI cars and not human-driven cars so they drive in a block and block out other people from using a section of road just so that they because they can't predict what the people are going to do so we just keep them off the road and block them out so that would not be an intended behavior of the system as a whole, but the system might learn to do something like that.
3: Well, it would seem um, terribly Because it reduces for their it. accidents.
0: So let's do that. So. You
3: think that the uh, uh, government should actually uh, be um, funding uh, universities, Australian universities, to actually work on this particular area of safety?
0: Yes. So one of my concerns would be I, Australia can set up areas of national interest and focus areas where, and have specific schemes to try and fund research. At the moment, there's not a, a large number of people that uh, there's there's a few more now working in transparency and that sort of thing. But um, there's certainly a lot of areas here that are not being well researched that we really need research to be covering, competing against every other scheme. It, it doesn't allow us to Uh, encourage people to switch to be uh, researching this area. Mm. Um, And I think it's an area that we could be leaders in. Uh, It's the same across the world. There's increasingly some people starting to to look at these areas, but it's certainly an area that uh, Australia needs to be focusing a lot more on. Australia does some great research in particular areas. One thing the public might not be aware is that different countries tend to have research focuses in different areas of AI Um, and if we're not covering um, funding within these aspects then we're not going to be able to cover the algorithms that Australia probably specializes a little bit more than other countries so certainly better funding uh, and better legislative frameworks for us to be operating in and just one of them is just without a legislative framework within Australia about what systems should be doing, there is little reason for companies to take that on. And if companies aren't taking that on, then there's no investment from industry into research.
3: And uh, that was my chat with Professor Richard Daisley. Uh, He's currently Professor of Artificial Intelligence and Machine Learning and Deputy Head of School for the School of Information Technology at Deakin University. Pretty fascinating stuff if you... If uh, you ask me, uh, you're on uh, 3CR Solidarity Breakfast, and we're focusing on artificial intelligence this morning.
4: Have become these gatekeepers to opportunity they're already deciding who gets hired who gets health care how long a prison sentence someone serves and what I didn't realize is that a lot of these algorithms haven't been vetted for accuracy we don't even know how accurate they are they often run on what's popular and we all know what's popular isn't always good and they haven't been vetted for racial bias and for gender bias I had no idea the scope of invasive surveillance, the, the preciseness to which they can predict our behavior, and how vulnerable all of us can be to sort of predatory practices because of these algorithms. And so we need some protections in place as citizens.
5: You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 8:45 a.m. on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio
3: So if we move on from Professor Richard Daisley's impressions of what's going on in the development of AI and a very scientific approach and a clear understanding of the limits We now see that there's applications uh, in the hands of, or as was succinctly put yesterday by my colleague on uh, Green Left Breakfast, uh, that uh, uh, AI is uh, constantly being used by capitalist forces to control people and to uh, reduce people's uh, working conditions and pay. Uh, and uh, so it's really not the AI but the actual society that we actually live in and the frameworks that we already have that are being embedded. And uh, the Unemployed Workers' Union brought out a fantastic uh, person a couple of years ago to talk to this point. This was uh, Virginia Eubanks. She'd put out a book called Automating Inequality, How High-Tech Tools profile punish and police the poor uh and uh it's an amazing uh book but she's an amazing speaker and uh this is uh, how uh Um, It's not AI that's doing this. It's a tool that's in the hands of uh, a a society that embeds its own inequality. And then she's talking about America. But, of course, many of the ideas were imported and have been imported here. And, of course, who can forget robo-debt?
5: I did more than 105 interviews over seven years uh, for this book. And in each case, each technology I talk about, I talk to lots of different kinds of people. So, developers of the tools, policymakers, frontline caseworkers. But in each story, I started with folks who are most directly affected by the tools, folks who are looking for public assistance, who are involved in the child welfare system, who are unhoused or homeless. And it's too rare that we hear the voices of people who are actually directly affected, particularly when we talk about these new technologies. Uh, I'm here to talk about uh, what I describe in the book as a digital poorhouse, which is a sort of invisible institution that's made up of decision-making algorithms, automated eligibility processes, and statistical models, particularly predictive models, in the U.S. social service programs. So I want to talk today about how the rise of this invisible institution is sunk into the policy history of the United States um, and how it responds and recreates specifically a narrative of austerity. This idea, this false idea that there's not enough for everyone and that we have to make hard decisions about who deserves to access their basic human needs and who does not. So we often talk about the kinds of tools that I write about in the book as disruptors, um, but they're really more evolution than revolution and their roots go very, very deep in U.S. history um, and specifically to a moment um, in the early 1800s Um, where we decided to sort of invent a new technology for managing poverty, which was, in the U.S. context, the county poorhouse. I think it's really important that we contextualize these tools that get talked about as if they sort of appeared from nowhere, like the monolith in 2001, A Space Odyssey. Their roots are really deep in our uh, respective histories. So I'm just going to talk about one of these historical moments briefly which is in 1819, we had a really horrible um, economic depression in the United States, one that was accompanied by a lot of organizing by poor and working class people uh, for their rights and their survival. And this, of course, made economic elites really, really nervous. Um, They did what economic elites always do when they get really nervous, and they commissioned a whole bunch of studies. Um, And so the studies, yeah, that that line never gets a laugh in academic talks, by the way. Just... (laughs) So they frame the question behind all these uh, studies, what's the real problem during this catastrophic economic recession? Is it poverty? Is it lack of access to resources? Or is it what they called at the time pauperism, which was dependence on public benefits? So how do you think the surveys, the studies came back? Was it actual poverty or was it pauperism? Yes, you're very smart people. Um, This is exactly what the studies came back and said. The problem is when we're too generous allowing people not to starve through this economic depression, they become dependent on public benefits. They lose their work ethic. They have a bunch of babies and get drunk. So they invented this new technology, technology, honestly, that was imported from England, which was our version of the workhouse. It's called the county poorhouse. And this was basically a brick and mortar institution for uh, more or less incarcerating people who asked for support from public funds. So they were strictly voluntary in the sense that homeless shelters are strictly voluntary, although you could be sentenced to the poorhouse for crimes like vagrancy, having nowhere to live, begging, asking for help, or prostitution, which at the time meant having sex while not being married. Um, So you could get sentenced to the poorhouse, but for folks who voluntarily entered, it was not an easy decision. It was 1819, so not everybody had these rights, but if you had the right to vote and hold office, you had to give it up in order to enter the poorhouse. You couldn't marry when you were in the poorhouse. You were often separated from your children because it was understood that poor and working-class children could be redeemed um, by having more contact with richer families, and by contact, they generally meant... Uh, labor uh, as domestic or agricultural workers and some of these institutions one of the most notorious being Tewkesbury in Massachusetts had death rates as high as 30 percent a year basically a third of people entering died every year so the reason that I use this as sort of the origin story I tell about the digital poorhouse is because it's a moment that the United States made two really important decisions the first was that the, the first and most important thing our social service system could do is a kind of moral diagnosis, deciding who deserves help and who doesn't, who's deserving and who is undeserving, rather than, say, building a system that created a universal floor under everyone. And the second thing we decided at that moment was that it was acceptable and appropriate to ask people to give up one of their basic human rights for another right? So their right to their children or their right to vote for their right to things like food and shelter. And this is what I think of as sort of the deep social programming that underlies the new tools that we're seeing in social services. If for the sort of techies in the, in the room, that would be the legacy program programming on which the rest of the tool is built want us to think a little bit together today about this political moment, about why these specific tools have become popular at this precise time, and I think there's three reasons for that. Um, the first is these new tools rationalize and recreate a politics of austerity, the idea that there's not enough for everyone. Second, they purport to address bias in these systems. But in fact, they often hide or displace the bias to a new place. Um, And third, at their worst, they create a kind of empathy override that allows us to ease the emotional burden of making what I think are inhumanly difficult decisions. Decisions like who gets access to emergency shelter and who is forced to live um, on the street in a tent or in a car. I dedicate this book to um, a little girl named Sophie Stipes. A severely disabled little girl who, um, when she was six, received a letter from the state of Indiana that explained that she would be losing her Medicaid, which is the health care insurance program for poor and working families in the United States, because she had failed to cooperate in establishing eligibility for the program. So this was happening just as she was gaining weight, really on par with normal um, patterns for the first time in her life. She had just had a gastrointestinal feeding tube um, uh, implanted, and she was learning to walk for the first time. Um, So her family was caught up in an attempt by the state of Indiana to um, uh, automate and modernize um, and privatize all of the eligibility functions for the state's welfare programs. So that's Medicaid, that uh, health insurance program I was talking about, cash assistance, with, which in the U.S. is called TANF, and food stamps, uh, a programs now called SNAP, but at the time was called food stamps. So in 2006, um, the governor of the state at the time, Mitch Daniels, signed what was eventually a 1.34 billion, with a B, billion dollar contract. With a consortium of companies including IBM and Affiliated Computer Services, or ACS, now owned by Xerox to create a system that basically replaced the work of local county caseworkers with online forums and regional call centers. And what that looked like from a caseworker's point of view was in the past, they had been responsible for a docket of families, or a caseload, um, which were individuals and families that they often developed relationships with over time and helped them navigate the really difficult, complex, and punitive social service system. Instead, they were now moved to regionalized call centers, often hundreds of miles away from where they lived, um, and responded, rather than um, to a docket of families, to a sort of a list of tasks that dropped into their electronic workflow management system. So for caseworkers, this felt very much like um, they were not able to develop relationships with people over time because every call just went to the next available worker. Um, It felt like their local knowledge was no longer useful. So they could say, like, well, it looks like you're not going to be eligible for food stamps. But they couldn't then say, but there's a food pantry in your town. It's open Tuesday nights. So they felt like it really changed the nature of their job. From applicants' point of view, it felt like if anything went wrong in this process, because it was so difficult to talk to the same person more than once, that basically all the responsibility for finding out what had gone wrong and fixing it fell on families themselves, which are some of the most vulnerable families in the state. Um, And the result was a million benefits denials in the first three years of the experiment. It was a 54% increase from the three years before the experiment. And almost all of them were denied for this catch-all reason that was in Sophie Stipes' letter. Failure to cooperate in establishing eligibility. The second tool I want to talk about today is a tool called the Allegheny Family Screening Tool, the AFST. Um, And the Allegheny Family Screening Tool is a statistical model that's supposed to be able to predict which children might be victims of abuse or neglect in the future in Allegheny County, which is the county where Pittsburgh is in Pennsylvania. So let me introduce you to a family. I want to introduce you to Angel um, and Patrick. Um, Angel Shepard and Patrick Grieb. Um, So I met them at this sort of community hub where families gather to like share resources, connect with each other, do peer support, that kind of stuff. Um, and Angel and Patrick didn't stand out right away because their experience really was so average. Um, it was so characteristic of what I see as the routine mundane indignities that are suffered by the white working class in the United States. So they've struggled with low wage, dangerous work, poor quality public schools and predatory online education, poor health and community violence. Um, But through it all, they've been creative, involved parents. So I describe Patrick in the book as kind of a Buddhist ex-biker, right? So he's this enormous rectangle, like refrigerator-sized man um, who has like really elaborate facial hair and he's really calm, he's like deeply calm. Um, and Angel and Patrick are caring for two young girls, or helping to care for two young girls, Angel's daughter, Harriet, and Patrick's daughter's daughter, Desiree. And the two girls are roughly the same age, so they bicker a lot, they fight a lot. So Angel and Patrick's solution for this is what they call the get-along shirt. And the get-along shirt is one of Patrick's like, enormous button-down shirts. And they take both girls and they put them in the shirt, um, one arm through one armhole, one arm in the waist of the other girl, and they button the shirt back up. Um, And you're not allowed to leave the get-along shirt until you stop fighting, (laughs) even if you have to go to the bathroom. Um, And this is the thing that Patrick said, always works. As soon as someone has to pee, the fighting stops, because no one wants to pee in the get-along shirt. Um... So, despite this, um, Angel and Patrick have racked up sort of a lifetime of interactions with the child welfare system in Allegheny County, which is called Children, Youth, and Family Services, or CYF. So Patrick was investigated for medical neglect in the early 2000s. Um, because he was unable to afford his daughter Tabitha's um, uh, antibiotic prescription after a visit to the emergency room. So he brought her to the emergency room because she was sick. They prescribed antibiotics. He couldn't afford to fill the prescription. She got worse. He brought her back. The nurse said, oh, we saw you before. We know you didn't fill the prescription. And they reported them for child neglect, um, for medical neglect. Um, When Harriet, Angel's daughter, was five, Someone phoned a string of reports to the county's child abuse and neglect hotline. So it's possible to be anonymous on these hotlines. So this sort of anonymous tipster explained that Harriet was running around the neighborhood unsupervised, that she was down the block teasing a dog, that she wasn't being properly clothed, fed, or bathed, that she wasn't getting needed medication. So for each call, an investigator from CYF came out to the house interviewed Harriet and Tabitha, Angel and Patrick, looked in all their cupboards and under all the beds um, and requested access to the family's medical records and then each time they found no evidence of maltreatment so they closed the case but the record of these cases uh, is now kept in digital form Um, And maintained on an integrated data um, warehouse that was built by the county in 1999, which feeds the Allegheny Family Screening Tool. So the system in Allegheny County um, sort of began in 1999 when the county built this integrated data warehouse that gets... Um, regular data extracts from about 30 different agencies around the county and around the state. So as of the writing of the book, um, that integrated data warehouse held about a billion records, uh, which was more than 800 for every individual living in Allegheny County. But it doesn't actually collect data equally on everyone living in the county. In fact, the way that public services works in the U.S., it really only collects information about poor and working families. So, um, for example, if you're struggling with um, an addiction or recovery issue, and you're a professional middle class family, you would go to your family doctor. That would be, they might refer you to addiction recovery. That would be covered by employer-provided private insurance, and that information would not go into this this database. If you're a poor and working class family, you'd rely on county services for those recovery services, and that data would go into the database. If you uh, are a professional middle class family and you need uh, just some like uh, respite in your parenting, you might get a nanny or pay for a babysitter and you'll pay out of pocket. If you are a poor and working class person and you need daycare when you go to work, you're going to get that from a county-based daycare provider um, and that information will go into the database. So, the parents that I spoke to about the system said that it felt like it confused parenting while poor with poor parenting. They were really concerned with what are known as false positives. So the this system that pulls variables from that data warehouse and runs an algorithm to create a risk score, parents, as you might imagine, were really concerned that it would predict harm where no harm was actually occurring. So that's a false positives problem. But I also spent a whole day sitting in the call center with intake screeners. They're the folks who get the calls from the county um, hotline or who get reports from mandated reporters and make this really difficult decision about which ones to screen in for full investigations and which ones to screen out. Keep the data but not investigate right now. And call screeners were worried about the same problem but from the opposite perspective. They were concerned about false negatives. Because the system has almost no data on professional middle class families, they were concerned that the system would not be able to recognize the kind of ha- or predict the kind of harm that actually might be happening in professional middle-class families. So, for example, there's good data in the United States that um, uh, geographic isolation is correlated with maltreatment, but those folks won't end up in the data warehouse, so that kind of harm um, won't be recognized and they won't be able to predict it. Um, so one of the things that's interesting about this system is the designers of the system will say that one of the reasons they built it is to identify and intervene in racial disproportionality in the system. In the United States, 47 of 50 states pull black, biracial, and Native American children out of their families and put them into foster care at rates that far exceed their proportion in the population. So that's known as racial disproportionality. So the designers of the system say, we don't know that this system necessarily will solve racial disproportionality, but we believe with better data, we can identify discriminatory decision making in the system and we can step in. Now what's really interesting is that the county's own data shows that intake screening, the point at which this tool is aimed, is not actually the place where racial disproportionality is entering the system. It actually enters at what's known as call referral, which is when people call on families to these hotlines or report them through mandated reporting processes. So in Allegheny County, black and biracial families are 350% more likely to be reported to child welfare services by the community. Once those cases get in the system, there is a little bit of disproportionality that's added at call screening. So call screeners screen in 69% of cases around black and biracial children, and only 65% of cases around white children, but that's a 4% difference versus a 350% difference. And I think that's something that's really interesting around these systems, and it it behooves us to pay really close attention when designers of these tools talk about them as tools for increasing racial equity. I think we should be really cautious um, when um, folks start making those arguments. Because what I saw in Allegheny County was a very sophisticated tool, um, a very resource intensive and sophisticated tool aimed at the place where the problem wasn't happening. And at worst, it could actually remove some human discretion from the front line of that system, these intake call screeners, who are, by the way, the most racially diverse, the most working class, and the most female part of their workforce. And uh, removing their discretion could very much create, actually, amplification of the kind of discrimination that's entering the system at call um, referral. So one of the questions I I try to leave people with in the book is um, to say, we shouldn't be asking discretion yes or no, we should be asking discretion who? Because I have this very smart um, political science friend named Joe Sauce. Um, And he said, discretion is like energy. It can never be created or destroyed. It's only ever moved. So in this case, they're actually moving the discretion from the front line of their workers and giving it to the economists and data scientists and computer programmers who are developing the system.
3: And we'll leave her there. That was Virginia Eubanks, her book, Automating Inequality, How High-Tech Tools Profile, Punish, and Police the Poor. Yeah, automating inequality. You're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast.
1: A week Solidarity Breaky Team listener, when big supremo Anthony Uzi got the, st- the states together to solve the problems of housing unaffordability, rental unaffordability in the private sector and... What a brilliant solution. He's handing billions to the states to subsidise the private sector to build more housing that people can't afford. Genius! They'll also fund the infrastructure the urban sprawl will require, saving the poor developers, the property industry, heaps more. Although doing little to save the ecology, the flora and fauna destroyed by corporate welfare. And they all agreed a rent freeze wouldn't work because that would discourage the private sector from providing the rentals that people can't afford. And they all know public housing doesn't work, else they wouldn't have flogged it off and privatised it. So there's the solution. Another $3.5 billion pissed up against the wall of the private sector. Anthony then went off to the Socialist Party conference, more like a three-day theatre with each act carefully choreographed. The left, we are told, the left, what's the definition of a misnomer? We are told having the numbers for the first time in eons, thanks to a bit of a break on the right branch stacking in Victoria, sensibly using those numbers to ensure the right wins as usual. But then it would take the world's largest telescope to detect the slightest difference between them and then doubt if it could detect any... The only time they come to blows in serious, critically important political debate is fighting over who gets their bums on the plush seats, and doesn't that make a difference? The conference was told by one of those bums on the plush, Minister for Train Killing and Being Offensive Richard malls the Bad Guys, they must support Focus, 38 million a day for 30 years on killing people because it will create thousands of well-paid union jobs. So obviously they can't think of projects that would create all those jobs but not kill people or support killing people. And Richard must plan to change the caring business class laws that make it illegal to force workers to join an evil union. Or the thousands of jobs could find themselves fined billions as caring employers object to the abrogation of their workers' God-given right not to join a union – parallel to their God-given right to enjoy the benefits won by the evil unions they won't join on God-given principle. And those most evil of evil unions, construction and maritime, want the filthy rich to be taxed to provide the public housing the governments know we don't need. But the government points out it has that item covered. It will fulfil its promise to untax the filthy rich, make them lots more filthy richer. All the more reason why those calling for spending on public housing are being so selfish, depriving the filthiest rich of their God-given filthiest rich rights. Worse, the selfish unions also want the government to ban the cut-stone kitchen-bench industry killing workers with silicosis while the government is still consulting on the best way to stop workers dying, and the industry points out that right now it would be economic suicide to stop workers dying. We're sure the government will find the proper balance, perhaps a formula on how many workers should die or suffer excruciating pain per so many benchtops. The filthiest rich of the filthy rich are proof. That the filthiest rich of the filthy rich are the big ideas people in this world, this greatest little economic order of the all, world. Exemplified this week by two of our filthiest rich of women, Gina Wronghart and Katie Pages of Wealth. Katie, the ever happy partner of the ever happy Jerry of the ubiquitous halfy for us and halfy for us Norman, who also owns the super profitable Magic Millions Thoroughbred Empire. And what these community-minded True Blue Aussies have in common is their endless litany of big ideas with one common thread. They have brilliant plans for governments to fork out heaps of money and or facilitate new ways for them to make even more profit without having to spend a cent of their own. And always for the common good, their sole concern. This week, Katie was photographed with leading sportswomen boasting her support for more investment in women's sport. Yes, she supported more investment by government. See? She gets the publicity and doesn't have to spend a cent. And then she turned up calling for the His Most Gracious Majesty's Dominion Games to be held on the Gold Coast where her thoroughbred empire just happens to be located, and called on the Victorian government to hand the money it would have spent on the Games to the Gold Coast mayor. See? Thinking only of the common good. And Gina also called for the Games to head north while pointing out she had no intention of providing any of the wherewithal. But more importantly for the national interest, Gina told a conference in Western Tribal Aussie sponsored by Gina one of our biggest pastoralists and squatters, as well as our biggest resource billionaire, that the agricultural industry, pastoralists and the squatocracy, cannot afford the costs of addressing climate change, of zero emissions, and yes, you guessed it, the government should meet the costs. True filthiest rich of the filthy rich person says the government should pay her to do something or other about climate change. And to show just how big-hearted this super generous offer is, prepared to take one for the country, Gina doesn't even believe in climate change. But in the national interest, she's prepared to take the money. So, listener, there's the secret of super-duper obscene wealth. Come up with brilliant ideas, big nation-building ideas, in which the government hands you the public purse. Meanwhile, in that lawyer's picnic, Gina and co. continue their fight over the spoils of the filthy rich, with their offspring's counsel this week accusing poor Gina of defrauding them. Poor Gina! Happy families drags on, along with public voyeurism. And another from the top of our filthiest rich of, Anthony Yura Pratt, is also into the honeypot. Anthony is so generous with other people's money, he's had his eyes on all that lovely, lovely workers' super for ages, throwing up exciting, altruistic ideas on how the filthy rich can get their hands on it through it investing in the filthy rich. So altruistic, he's running full-page ads, jobs for true He's proud to sponsor the Superfund Lending to Business Roundtable. Sir Anthony, a true knight of the round table, making a killing using workers' money to employ workers using their own money to exploit themselves. The caring business class taking that money all the way to the bank without risking one cent of their own. Like toll road recipient of public largesse, Transfer Your Wealth Urban, announcing a new supremo to take over in October. Michelle Jabalcoeo, the motorist, who proudly declared she wants to continue to deliver value to customers. Whatever that means. Customers. That's those poor captives handing their hard-earned to transfer your wealth urban to enjoy sitting in a traffic jam morning and night. Her appointment announced under a headline, Transfer Your Wealth Keeps On... Oh no, we can't say that on air. No, no, no. Oh no, sorry, we can. My mistake. Keeps on tracking. Last week, we celebrated that record profit at the witch bank, which used to be our bank, allowing it to help its struggling customers, presumably to keep struggling after the witch bank has no choice, but reluctantly to toss them into the gutter. Anyway, it's got a subsidiary called Unloan, another misnomer because its business is just that, loans, contributing marvelously to the record profits, but talk about ungrateful. A worker, it was good enough to provide with a job, a 38-hour-a-week job, complained he was forced to work 60-hour weeks, seven days a week, perform multiple roles, not in his job description, complained, failing to comprehend it's the nature of the job, and sensibly, when he complained about all that, unload had no option but to unpay him. Sadly, have had to let him go. And what thanks. This selfish worker is suing for unfair dismissal. But to balance that distressing attack on which bank which used to be, we mean how else is it going to go on making record profits? Balance that exciting news, listener, that irresistible 92-year-old male sex symbol, Lord Rupert of Wapping, is in love again. Women just can't resist him, can they? Whooping it up on his luxury yacht with the latest smitten, lucky, lucky, many, many decades younger woman, a Russian scientist, the happy, happy couple, last seen sailing off Corfu with two of Lord Rupert's offspring from his third, or was that his fourth, or whatever, marriage, the Chinese woman he married to facilitate making money in China. I'm sure you're as excited as I am, listener, and on all our behalves, we wish the happy couple a wonderful, profitable future together. The last one, an arch-conservative radio shock jock with whom he would have had so much in common, he nonetheless called off the marriage at the last minute. The previous one, with whom he had gone down the aisle, he emailed to say it was all over. He's so lovable, isn't he? Well, to show just how much he cares for all of us, we started with the private sector solution to the private sector housing problems, cares for all of us, Lord Rupert's Newsbury Limited is promoting Future Victoria Business Leaders Event, the keynote speaker, award-winning urban designer and a globally recognised expert in smart cities and social change. And to show what a boon this will be for all of us, it's sponsored by Lord Rupert's whopping Sin, the Chamber of Prophets, the Cook Casino, and builder-developer John Holland Prophets. So that's guaranteed to make a big difference. Interesting to know what Lord Rupert's idea of social change. Perhaps we could pass on a few of our ideas, a few of our thoughts on that. Finally, as all of the above sank into irrelevance, The recently deceased fighter for his cause, Harry Belafonte, sang, Ma Tilda, sing a little louder. But alas, they couldn't quite sing loudly enough. Good morning.
4: Hi, I'm Ahmed from Fidwell Primary School, and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR.
3: And you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And we're coming to the end of the program. The program that's uh, been focusing on artificial intelligence, AI, as the breakfast shows across the week have been on 3C. And we're going to finish with a our, uh, overview, really. It's part of a, a piece, um, a, a talk given by uh, Democrat Representative Jayapal um, in America. She was talking at a Trade Justice Education Fund event. It was a, a Seattle town hall on digital trade. And uh, it gives you an idea um, about the state of affairs internationally regarding uh, big tech, uh, tech's move to try and uh, escape governmental uh regulation and what that will mean for everybody else effectively if it happens and it's in the context of a thing called the India Pacific economic framework which we are part of australia and it's uh, you'll notice that it's not a free trade deal it's now a framework a much deeper kind of uh, affair than just a trade deal, the uh, IPEF, India-Pacific Economic Framework, and even the Americans are scared of big tech. So this is what she's got to say.
2: We were able to draw tremendous attention to the problems of monopoly power and big tech and to build some momentum by passing a bipartisan suite of bills in the House Judiciary Committee, including my bill, the Ending Platform Monopolies Act to break up corporations that are too big to care and too powerful to put people over profits. At this precise moment, when policymakers and the public are finally paying increased attention to the enormous role that big tech plays in our economy and in our society, different big tech interests want to internationally preempt the United States Congress's ability and other governments' ability to enact all sorts of measures addressing consumer privacy, data security, AI accountability, online discrimination, abuse of gig workers, and big tech monopolies killing smaller firms and abusing customers. Very proud, by the way, to have the bill to ban the government's use of facial recognition technology because of many of these issues that we're dealing with. The aim of these tech tech giants is to derail government oversight and policies that protect workers, consumers, and small businesses. Trade agreements then become a vehicle to quietly slip slip in what we're now calling so-called digital trade rules that help preserve that anti-competitive power. (laughs) Dangerous provisions were already slipped into trade agreements during the Trump administration, but now there are interests that seek to lock in and expand those rules and apply them to a lot more countries via trade talks that are currently underway. For over a year, I've been working in partnership with Senator Elizabeth Warren and with other members of the House and the Senate to call out the revolving door between big tech and the Department of Commerce and the impact that this revolving door can have on global digital trade rules. So let me describe some of what the industry is proposing with those rules now. And what we, I think, need to do and organize around to ensure that we're preserving the policy space needed to to put together appropriate regulations for big tech. And the three major areas I want to focus on are, first, AI accountability and online civil rights and civil liberties. Second, consumer privacy. And third, anti-monopoly. So on the first one, we need to ensure that these trade agreements include no provisions that limit potential AI regulation. Again, just what was being spoken about. And that includes no special secrecy guarantees for AI companies' algorithms and source codes. Now, you've probably heard about artificial intelligence in the news recently. Maybe you've used chat um, but there is uh, already a pervasive use of AI in other forms called automated decision making. There are systems that are using algorithms and very large data sets to automate decisions around criminal prosecution, around sentencing and bail, around loans and housing, around healthcare services, job applications, wages, promotions, and more. I want to be clear that this is not anti-AI. AI AI can be incredibly helpful in a wide wide range of areas, including scientific and medical research, environmental protection, and elsewhere. But recent experience has shown us that many of the algorithms that are used in AI and the huge data sets that they rely on actually replicate the very same forms of discrimination that we have been fighting against throughout society also um, there's a question of what consumers know about when these algorithms are being used because increasingly consumers don't even know that the decisions that are being made that affect their health or their housing or any of these other services are done by an algorithm and they have those algorithms have enormous assumptions built in that actually end up undermining the quality of care as well as equal protection under the law. We've seen this happening. you heard one example of this. I want to point out another one that's being used, another topic near and dear to my heart, is around the privatization of Medicare that's happening and Medicare Advantage. Private insurance companies that run Medicare Advantage using AI to kick seniors off of care that they uh, rightly deserve because. Um, the algorithm is decided they can only stay in that care for 10 days or 12 days or whatever the average number is. But also in hiring practices, as I said, criminal justice applications, search engines, face recognition, provision of public services, self-driving cars, you name it, AI is probably there. So we can't hide our heads in the sand and pretend that this transformation doesn't exist. We need to wrap our arms around Uh, how to regulate properly, including around potential abuses that we may not even be able to predict sitting here in 2023. At the same time, recognizing the real potential for good, for innovative research that can solve health problems or be used for global mapping or environmental protection and much more. We also have to fight back against big tech interests that seek strict secrecy guarantees in our trade agreements that would impede governments from using the very tools that the AI experts worldwide recommend. Tools that are also promoted, by the way, in the White House's blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights. Things like pre-screening of AI and detailed documentation, which requires access to the detailed descriptions of algorithms and sometimes of the source code itself. This administration, the Biden administration's AI Bill of Rights and numerous pending bills in Congress proposed to counter AI abuses related to illegal police surveillance or denial of employment or credit or housing or violations of antitrust and other fair market policies, hour and wage and hour violations, invasions of worker privacy and rights to organize unions and online self-preferencing and other monopoly abuses. Much of this, in the White House Bill of Rights, AI Bill of Rights, if not all of it, would be forbidden under the digital trade rules that industry wants. So big tech demands to insert AI secrecy guarantees in our trade deals would endanger government regulation as well as the public's understanding of how their data is actually being utilized, how your data is being utilized. And there's really no justification for the secrecy because trade rules already require that governments... Keep firms' confidential business information secret, the information that's submitted to a government for a regulatory process. The special additional secrecy rules that big tech is demanding would just make it hard to regulate AI moving forward. We also need to monitor carefully another potentially dangerous element of the big tech digital trade agenda regarding data flows and the location of computing facilities. And I know this sounds very wonky, and some of this is as part of the challenge of getting the information out. But we need to rebalance these rules, protect our policy space around your privacy protection and data security. Obviously a functioning internet requires the ability to transfer data often across borders, but there are real concerns about authoritarian governments censoring platforms and pieces of information that they find inconvenient to their rule. But let's not kid ourselves. There are differences between public information that you find in a newspaper or a library and should easily be able to look up on the internet and personal information that you find in your private medical and banking records. Certain, Certain digital trade proposals would give companies absolute control over all that data including the most sensitive personal information and also the most sensitive government and business information, like relating to the operation of water and electrical systems or nuclear power plants. So forbidding governments from regulating the flow of data or where it's stored would greatly undermine policies that are needed to protect consumer privacy and to ensure that data is kept, uh, sensitive data is kept securely. Not all agreements on data flows and storage are necessarily bad, but there are plenty of legitimate reasons why we shouldn't give big tech carte blanche over where our personal information is shipped, processed, and stored. I believe, and this has been uh, a hallmark of my time in Congress, that people deserve real control over where their personal information is shared. They should have a right to minimization of what your personal data, what pieces of your personal data is kept, or to be able to delete certain data, or to be able to get corrections to that data. And we can't be in a position where we allow trade agreements to undermine that work that we are still trying to do here in the United States, much less around the world. The third concern, and the last one I'll mention now, is our ability to promote fair competition and to safeguard against monopolies. Groups speaking out against big tech's digital trade proposals include labor unions, civil rights organizations, consumer advocates, faith communities, and other representatives of civil society. But small and medium-sized tech players are also speaking out because the biggest of the big tech giants are trying to hijack trade agreements in ways that not just undermine consumer privacy and AI accountability like we've spoken about, but also undermine antitrust and uh, fair competition measures. The ways that trade agreements can do this is a little bit complicated, but essentially it revolves around using trade deals to label any laws and regulations that have a disproportionate impact on certain platforms or products or services over others as an illegal discriminatory trade barrier that has to be eliminated, even if that disproportionate impact is just based on a company's market share or size. If some of these interests in big tech were to get their way, basically any policy that targets monopolies could become an illegal trade barrier. So we need to ensure that our trade rules enable fair competition and don't limit our ability to go after monopolies. I know our panelists are going to dive deeply into these and other areas. And so I'll just close by saying there is a way to fix things and to get this right. Um, the president has said that he's committed to creating a new worker-centered trade policy. He has led a great all-of-government competition policy initiative. And his, uh, in his 2023 State of the Union address, he called out big tech by name and declared that his administration would fight to ensure privacy and protect our kids from big tech abuses. And we have incredible champions in the administration like Lena Kahn and Rohan Chopra, um, really doing the work of the agency to address some of these issues. The president's uh, US Trade Representative, Ambassador Catherine Tai, has called for a new way of doing things on digital trade to replace the old corporate rig rules in Trump's USMCA. She wants rules that are supported by labor, by privacy advocates, by small business, and by others. But we need to help make that vision a reality. And one way we can get there, and the reason I'm here today, is because it really takes folks like you shining a light on this issue and helping to break it down for people so that more people understand how these trade agreements are being used. Because the hundreds of official industry trade advisors and big tech lobbyists in D.C., and Elizabeth Warren and I are working on a letter right now about some of these advisory committees that are set up that are stacked, really stacked with industry lobbyists instead of with regular folks that represent your interests and our constituents' interests. So these uh, these the, the deck is rigged. It is stacked. Um, it's on full tilt to allow some of these big corporate interest to commandeer these current trade talks with Asia, um, including in the Indo-Pacific Economic Partnership, or IPAC, um, as well as global talks, and to get these kind of big tech powers and rights locked in. I mentioned earlier my work challenging the revolving door between big tech firms and certain U.S. agencies in charge of pending trade negotiations. The more that groups like the Washington Fair Trade Coalition and others shine a spotlight on what big tech is up to in these pending trade negotiations, the harder a time they're going to have reading the rules behind closed doors. Sorry.
3: And uh, we'll leave her there. I'm sorry the uh, quality wasn't so good, but it was pretty important information. That was uh, Democrat Representative uh, Jay- Jayapal, who was talking about uh, the fight to uh, curtail the power of big tech. And that's the end of uh, Solidarity Breakfast this morning and our focus on AI and its effect on our society or how our society uh, affects AI, um, artificial intelligence. just before I go, a reminder about a couple of events. Uh, 11 o'clock today outside the National Gallery of Victoria. Extinction Rebellion have got an event and it's being run by the Mother's Rebellion for Climate Justice. So that's 11am. Uh, also on Thursday, Friday, uh, the uh, Brotherhood of St. Lawrence workers are going out on strike. There's going to be a rally on Thursday at 12.30 outside the Fitzroy branch in Brunswick Street of uh, Brotherhood of St. Lawrence, and supporters are welcome. And if you've uh, got time or an inclination and a little bit of money, Tallick, George Tallick with uh, David Bridie, they're on tonight at 7pm Uh at uh, the Memo Music Hall 88 Ackland Street St Kilda uh, would be a great show and uh we'll go out with um George Tallick's song uh Gira Emma I e. Uh as uh, the um it says it was released on October the 7th uh 2022 and if you want it you could uh Go to Bandcamp and download his uh, digital or CD um, uh, material, and you'd be on. You'd be fighting for uh, good. Uh, George Tallick, uh will be going out with this song on uh, Solidarity Breakfast this morning. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. Mm-hmm. Come up now Look at him good Mama, grand long Papa, God, you been Giving peace
4: Blessing that long all Get a Look at him All the
3: Look at him good Right long You need Now develop
5: him Country long You like you may come up long behind
1: time
2: Australia's energy market is broken. Right, but co-power gives you better energy? Nope, no retailer can control where the electrons they buy off the grid come from. But as a co-power member, you can vote on where 100% of revenue goes. So instead of corporate profit, your energy bill builds the world you want to be a part of. That's cool. Learn more about the solidarity economy and co-power today. And take the
3: power back.
2: Victorian Energy Fact Sheets and Basic...
3: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.